0: Welcome to Business Line's State of the Economy podcast, where you'll find insight, analysis, and the story behind the numbers. Hello and welcome to Business Line podcast I'm Nivedita Last week Infosys co-founder Narayan Muthi broke the internet when he urged Indians to work for 70 hours He said and I quote My request is that our youngsters must say this is our country and I would like to work 70 hours in uh, hope to improve it So this statement was supported by a lot of people and a whole lot of people were against it But the reality is that Indians tend to work really hard and there's data to show it Latest data from the International Labour Organization shows that employed Indians work on an average of 47.7 hours and that's one of the highest in the world. But despite all of this, the productivity rate of Indians is one of the lowest in the world. In this podcast, we are not going to talk much about Mr. Modi's comments. Instead, we're going to try and understand why productivity levels are low and if Mr. Modi's solution is possible, if it's feasible. Many people believe it is, but is it? So I have with me Ashwini Deshpande who is the head of the department of economics and is a professor of economics in Ashoka University to help us understand all of this. Thank you so much professor for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So professor let's start with the basic. What exactly is productivity and why is it important for an economy? So
1: productivity can be of any input. Mm -hmm. So if you think of labor, let's say you have only two inputs that's producing something. So let's Mm -hmm. say labor and capital. What you mean by labor productivity would be if labor input was increased by one unit, how much would output increase by? that would be productivity per worker. Similarly, if you, whatever the units of the capital equipment are, if you increase that by one unit, how much would productivity, uh, how much would total product increase by? Mm -hmm. That would be considered the productivity of that one machine. Of course, Mm -hmm. when you are in a, when you're estimating productivity, that's not how it's done because we don't add one worker at a time to, let's say in a factory or in an office. So in terms of how it is estimated, there are several methodologies depending on which sector you're measuring productivity for. But the idea in productivity is that the effort that workers are putting in or an individual worker is putting in is contributing to an increase in the output of that firm. That is a some, roughly speaking, that's a measure of labor productivity. It matters because if labor productivity is high, then for a given number of workers working in a given number of hours, output would be higher than a similar situation where labor productivity is low. So that's just in terms of what is productivity. But any, when you think of any output, whether it is a service sector output or whether it is a manufacturing output, agricultural output, labor is only one of the inputs that goes into the determination of total output. So if the worry is that India's GDP could be higher than what it is, then we have to think of what might be the reasons behind that. Is it that workers are not putting in full effort and they don't reach the full output potential? whereas everything else is working in an optimum manner. Is that the reason or are there other reasons, etc.? So going from productivity to how rich the country is or the GDP or the output level, that is, it's not labor productivity alone that changes the output level.
0: Okay. So in India, we've had a period, a long period since the 1990s of high economic growth, but the labor productivity is still quite low. Why is that? How is that happening? One would assume that when there's high growth, productivity is increasing and that's why it's leading to economic growth. Well, it depends
1: on which sector we are talking about. Mm-hmm. So remember, one of the features of the Indian economy is that 90% of India's work labor force works in the informal sector. The informal sector is also very heterogeneous. So you can have actual manufacturing units that might be in the informal sector, you can have a person who's setting up a makeshift stall or is just living, you know, doing some odd jobs here and there just in order to survive. That's also the informal sector. However, overall, the conditions of work and the level of technology and the level of capital intensity in the informal sector is much poorer than that that in the formal sector. I'm not sure that the productivity of India in the formal sector, if you compare like with like, so you take a software firm, for example, in India, and you compare that with another software firm. I don't have the numbers of, you know, that kind of detail, because this is not my area of specialization. But it's not obvious to me that if you compared like with like, that in every single sector, India's labor productivity is lower than the corresponding sector uh, in another another country. That's Mm -hmm. one. The second thing is that when you make that comparison, you also have to account for the differences in technology and the differences in capital. Mm -hmm. So a, a given worker can will have achieved greater productivity if there is better better or more advanced capital equipment and better technology for example so the same worker can produce much more output contribute marginally to much more output if the technology is very good or if the capital uh, intent, uh, if the capital equipment is very good so when we compare india to other countries we also have to account for the fact that the technology that indian companies uh, use not all of them again it varies a lot by sector uh, so my first point is also that we should not generalize about india as such Because, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, sectors vary, they're very heterogeneous. So evidence that we would need to see is to compare like with like similar industries that operate with similar levels of capital that operate with similar technologies. And then do you see that Indian labor productivity is lower or not? That's an empirical question. And we need to examine that. But I don't think anybody has done that.
0: So we talk about high growth rates and we are proud of that fact but we don't talk about productivity so is it fair to say that the government and policy makers are focusing more on economic growth even if the productivity of the people across sectors is quite low
1: so how do we know that this growth didn't occur because
0: of increase in labor productivity
1: see when that's why you know if you think of the first my answer to the first question what does labor productivity mean? It means that each worker, the extra output that, that could be attributed to the effort of each individual worker working on a with a given technology, with a given set of capital equipment. So how do economic growth or levels of GDP are not independent of labor productivity? Labor productivity has not caused an increase in, uh, or an increase in labor productivity has not caused an increase in economic growth. Is it all due to capital or is it all due to technology? It could be heretically it could be I'm not saying that that cannot be but has anybody done this decomposition you know if you decompose the increase in GDP across you know contributions of different inputs see output is produced by different inputs right so the argument that you just made is oh, I mean you're you're reporting other people but the argument that you're asking me a question about is about how can we how is it that we've had high growth whereas the productivity is either stagnant or falling oh. my counter question to that is that people who are arguing that have they really done an empirical study? decomposing the change in uh, rate of growth and attributing that to the productivity of different inputs? Is it that in some sectors we had a massive technological advancement and that led to an increase in the output and that could happen but of course then labor productivity will also go up you know. Yeah. Um, So you think about you know you work with you know you are probably too young to have worked without a computer but I remember at the time when we had to write drafts you know fully by hand versus now I can write on my computer so I can get much more writing done today Mm. Than I could get done 20 years ago when I didn't have a computer. But that's because of the fact that now I have a machine on which I can type much more. So keeping everything else constant, my productivity has been enhanced because of the availability of that machine, right? I might have worked the same number of hours earlier as I do today, but I still would not be able to write as many pages as I can write today because now I can write it with my machine. So very simply. So the point is that when you see an increase in output, you have to understand what is it? Is it the number of hours of labor that have gone down? And despite that, if that has happened, then it's capital. And then it's technology that's contributed to it. But I'm saying that it needs a little bit of a rigorous study where you break down the reasons of which input into the production process has contributed how much to the growth of GDP. Now, this is a bit far removed from my personal area of research, but this is the way I would think about the question, right? When I had to yeah. think, if I had to think about it, I would say, okay, fine, maybe this is true. Then now let me look at the data. And those who work on these kinds of issues, that's what a good researcher working on these questions would look at it. But I'm just saying that a blanket assumption that A, that India's labor productivity across all sectors is stagnant or has risen not very ha- much or is falling, uh, is a bit of a, I think, a sweeping generalization. And then we have to say, has is not high relative to what is it, you know if you're comparing it to another country then do then you must, must also compare the conditions of work in India to those other countries right oh. so do our our workers have efficient public transport that they can get to work you know work on time and then they can put in put in their full eight hours without getting exhausted what about their workspaces what is the kind of technology that they're working with what is the kind of capital equipment that they are working with when you compare like with like then you can say that labor productivity in country x in this sector is higher than labor productivity in country y in that same sector but these are very careful these need to be made with a lot of careful research and i i haven't seen that kind of careful research but it can be done it's not like it, and there have been cross-country studies of uh, you know hours of work and um, and gdp etc comparing all that so there are researchers who look exactly at these kinds of questions
0: so there's a case for what you say, right? Because if you look at, say, a country like France, they don't have the uh, highest work hours, but their productivity is exceptionally high. Same with Germany, same with the US. So anecdotally, one can say that those countries are more developed in in, in social infrastructure. So they can have, uh, employees can go about their day, finish their day and be more productive in the sense compared to an Indian where, you know, your travel is longer, you might not have the social security to back it up in your house. We might not have the same level of technology like you are saying. So there is anecdotal evidence where we can just pick right off the hat to maybe make the case that it's not only labor that's the problem, right? Yeah,
1: yeah. So, and it's not just social, social infrastructure is a big part of the story, but it's actual infrastructure inside a company
0: or or an office, right? Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. Am I I using the most updated machines? Mm -hmm. Am I using the latest technology, you know, as a worker? And if I'm not, then another worker in another country who is using a, you know, state of the art technology, that worker is going to be more productive. I mean, yeah, yeah. that firm or factory is going to be more productive because they are using the state of the art in terms of capital equipment, in terms of technology, and so on and so forth. And all these accompanying factors that make work pleasurable or not pleasurable, may or may not be, but certainly that make work easier, that facilitate work, right? So I think that the question is a very interesting one, uh, but I think it needs to be uh, dealt into and, you know, even though you did not ask me this question, but I'm going to say it anyway, which is that when you talk about, you know, recently claudia golden won the nobel prize yes. for economics and her latest book you know career and Fam- family and career uh, focuses on uh, the united states college graduates and she talks about this phenomenon called greedy jobs these are jobs which require 70 80 hours a, wee- uh, a week working and even though both parents are, might be equally well educated, but the fact is that if you have a family and if you have children and if work needs to be done at home in terms of care or, you know, food, arrangement or food or whatever, swimming classes, piano lessons, whatever it is, only one parent of the two can do these kind of greedy jobs. Because everything can't be outsourced to a nanny. If the school calls, uh, suddenly panicking, your ch- child is sick, who's going to leave the job and is going to, you know, go and, go it's and pick up the, the woman. When you have a phenomenon of greedy jobs, it mm. what she talks about in the United States is that most often, it's the man in the family, the husband, who's able to do the greedy job, not because the wife is incapable of doing it, but because of the norm that as far as children and domestic work is concerned, the woman is expected to do it. Yeah. So in the context of India where... Female labor force participation is already an issue. If you, if, offices or, you know, at high at the high level uh, started, you know, in white collar jobs started to say that, okay, you know, you're going to get that promotion or you're going to get that bonus. If you work 70 hours, then you can there's no prizes for guessing, uh, you know, which section of the employees are, are going to be able to do it. So uh, that
0: brings me to my next question, which is women anyway do a major uh, a majority of housework or unpaid work. So if companies start recruiting and saying, hey 70 hours of work for everyone, these longer work hours will adversely affect the woman, right? So as you just said, women participation in the workforce is already very low. And if schemes like this come out, many more women will drop out. Won't that have a bad impact on the economy then. Of course,
1: without doubt. Already we are losing out on GDP. I mean, one is concerns of gender equality for which women must, because women inherently can be as productive as men. It's just that they don't get the kinds of opportunities that which, you know, because they are already Indian women are highly educated. Educational gaps between men and women in India have been rapidly declining fertility rate in india has been declining it's now at replacement level so the burden of child care is it's there in the cities but it's not no longer the case of you know having multiple children and having to take care of them etc etc Maternal mortality rate has declined significantly in India. So all the conditions that you need for women to enter the labor force are there, actually. But there aren't enough jobs. Already there is a crisis. And now, if you institute what you know, this Claudia Golden's work of greedy, greedy jobs, or even if they are not greedy jobs, just jobs that require very long hours of work, women, even if those jobs existed, first of all, they don't exist. But even if those existed, uh, women are not going to be able to take it. Right. So uh, when you talk about, when you look at the figures of youth unemployment, they are literally literally not finding jobs. So to say that they don't work hard enough, that's not quite an accurate description. Basically, where where would the young people work? You know, Are there enough jobs to make them gainfully employed, commensurate with you know, what, what their qualifications are? So I think when we talk about the labor situation or the employment situation in India, productivity is only one aspect of what we need to consider as a whole. Productivity is also a little differently understood. The technical definition is one thing, but People use it in all kinds of ways, you know, and it's also harder to measure. So I think there are empirical challenges with measuring productivity. So, you know, there one must be aware, not that it can't be done and not that it hasn't been done. It's a very important exercise that needs to be done. But we must be aware that we don't have absolutely official labor productivity figures. And they will vary a lot by sector. You know, you think of the banking sector, you think of, you know, software, think of IT, think of hospitality. Each of these has a different marker for productivity, right?
0: So when you're focusing on productivity, an important aspect when you talk about is, about labor is skill development. One thing many people always talk about when it comes to skill development is that Indian youth, like you said, are unable to find jobs because they're not skilled enough. Is that a problem with productivity? And they only get by the time they start to like get employment and a good chunk of their life is, I wouldn't say wasted, but, you know, are gone in trying to get the employment because get the skills because they're not taught that in schools and colleges. Is that a problem also?
1: skill develop skill mismatch. I know it gets discussed a lot. And obviously, uh, you know, there are there is enormous opportunity for skilling in certain sectors, etc. However, when you think of education as a whole, you know, when you think of school education or college education, it is not only meant to make you ready for a vocation. So in the whole idea about education is that you must read and learn about things that you may not directly use in a particular job going forward. A lot of work is actually learning on the job, including for academics. I mean, you would yeah. think academic degrees are sort of most skill matched in some sense because you've done a PhD on something and you get a job as a as a professor. However, when you get into a college and start teaching children, there is so much about the job that one learns on the job, and I suspect that to be true of a lot of occupations, including professional dec- things like you know medicine and law and um, engineering. Why is it that more experienced doctors are more committed? Because they've learned on the job, they've just seen a number of patients. And they have insights that no textbook can actually teach them. So I feel that the role of the skill mismatch should not be exaggerated as well. Of course, there is enormous scope for increasing skilling. More than that, I would say there's enormous scope of improving the quality of education inside our schools. So when you look at, you know, the state of uh, education reports, etc., the ASAR reports, you find that somebody who's in class six or class seven can't read a book that is meant for a class two child or can't do a math question and so on. So what I would say is not so much skill, but I would say poor quality of education, not encouraging critical thinking. It's all very by rote. You mug up something and you do it. So I would focus because if you have those qualities, if you have the ability to problem solve, if you have the ability to think creatively, then whichever job you go into, you if you have the basic knowledge, of course, that's how you match the CVs. But you will pick up on the job. But if you've been brought up in this very boxed kind of an education system that doesn't encourage critical thinking, that doesn't give you problem solving skills, um, then the skill mismatch issue becomes larger, you know. So I would say, I know that skill mismatch is the buzzword these days. Everybody's talking about it, but my view on it is slightly different. Of course, skilling is important. And there are many vocational courses that could do a better job of imparting a skill that might be useful for a particular vocation, of course, without saying. But I think you need to step back from just skill, uh, imparting skills, but you need to step back and look at the system of education as a whole. Of what we learn, you know, how much are we absorbing? How much How much is, you know, the critical part of our thinking? Or are we just mugging up some things? And after the exam is over, we don't remember a word of what was taught. Uh, you know, mathematical uh, skills, for example. I would focus on those kinds of things. You know, mathematics is a really critical area. By the time students come to college, it's often too late. They've had suffered through series of bad mathematics teachers and bad, you know, lessons. You know, it's a... Yeah. And they are ready to give up mathematics by the time you come to, you know, high school or even in college. But the knowledge of mathematics or the ability to think mathematically could actually serve you really well in a variety of professions Mm -hmm. that may not actually require mathematics you see so i would say encouraging uh, you know scientific thinking scientific rigor having an open mind being open to different points of view these are what make a person intelligent give people abilities to problem solve so i would step back a little bit from this very narrow skills debate into making what would be a good worker who has all of these skills now I'm using skills in my, you know, with my definition. Yes, yes. Not in a narrow
0: sense. Yes. Yes. So that's the pro- uh, problem that many offices face, also, right? So they, in, educational institutions, talk a lot about hundred percent placements and all, but when the students go to offices, they're not quote unquote office ready. We hear that term also a lot. So that's a huge issue for us, and that also contributes to low productivity. How can we fix that thing?
1: Well, given that I don't work in an office, I'm not the best person to answer this. But again, you know, I'll just repeat a bunch of things that I've said, which is that colleges can't make students office ready. I mean, every office, different kinds of offices have different office cultures. And they, those conditions are, why should colleges replicate those conditions and uh, give, you know, give that training? I mean, if that was what was expected of me, I don't know whether I would want to be in an academic setting. What I hope that my I'm tra- training my students to learn are A, some technical skills like mathematics, statistics, whatever, but also broaden their horizons by exposing them to different ideas, different thoughts, things that they might not have thought about earlier. The hope is that being equipped with these ideas, when they go into a workplace, they are able to problem solve and they're able to learn what is needed to be learned on the job. So I don't agree that colleges should make People. I mean, first of all, office cultures vary a lot, you know, so I don't even know what an office culture is, because I've never worked in an office, you know, so <laughs> I'm just saying that, yeah, office ready, fine. So, you know, you figure out a way, you have orientations, you have a training program, first hire them on probation, you know, teach them the ropes, etc. So I think offices also need to do their bit in order to generate the office culture. Also, you know, the other thing, I'll t- tell you the other problem in the other direction, which is a lot of the times, by the time students have gone through colleges, their minds have expanded, for many students, you know, they think differently.
0: Yeah, they totally. believe,
1: for example, in gender equality or whatever it is, right? They've been taught about, you know, women are no less than men, et cetera, et cetera. And then they go into an office, which is still working along very conventional, conservative lines. And there might be a woman who's uh, read all this material, is thinking differently, has aspirations and comes face to face with a male boss who, you know, who uh, is pulling rank, pulling gender, you know, hierarchies being very insensitive to the fact that he's you know dealing with a female employee and then she's not only shocked but she's disillusioned so that's office culture quote-unquote but should we be teaching them that you should just be subservient to your boss? no I don't think so you know so office culture is not something sacrosanct that is some state-of-the-art some utopia which colleges must, must teach in fact if office cultures change for better because of the training that we give in educational institutions I wouldn't think that would be a bad thing so again, to link it up with productivity is is, is hard.
0: Yeah, yeah. So that's the. She was not point. able to give in her best, you know. Yeah, yeah. Is cool. it
1: because she's a lazy worker? Or is it because of factors at the workplace that are discriminating?
0: Mm-hmm. So these are
1: very complicated issues.
0: So I was thinking more like when we talk to like professionals, they say, or like people who hire, they tend to say that n- they don't have enough technical skills. When, when it comes to coming to office. So they recruit people on a mass basis, hoping that they have skills and they find out that many people do not have the skills that are necessary, which are supposed to have been part of the course. And they find that it's a huge problem. Yeah, I, I can see that totally because we
1: face exactly the same problem. Mm-hmm. You know, somebody has done an undergraduate or high school from... And now we're teaching undergraduate students. Mm-hmm. They've done maths in class 11th and 12th. So we just assume that yeah. they know calculus, they can integrate functions, they can differentiate functions. They know what a matrix is. But because that's why, now go back to the point I was making about the education system. It's literally, you finish an exam and you forget all about what you've learned. Mm-hmm. Because from the school level onwards, we are not teaching in a way that knowledge gets retained and advanced. We mm-hmm. teach, which is, it goes in through the through one year, retains there, sits in your head till the exam and literally one minute after the exam, it goes out through the other year and you mm-hmm. don't remember anything. And so when we have to go back and teach them class 11 and 12 uh, material, it's frustrating because you say, oh, wait a minute, shouldn't you have already done that? Or don't you know this already? I think it's a it's a problem that go, that's inherent in our education system, I would say. It's not so much about skilling. It's more about just the way things are taught. And it's a very exam, final exam oriented system. So you just cram and cram and cram and make sure that you get that 98 on 100. So that's the other thing. See, I mean, at the time when employers are complaining, uh, if you see the grades, every year when you see the class 12 results, they're going into, you know, 98%, 100%. So are these people smarter than those uh, who used to get 60%, you know, 40 years ago? I'm not sure, you know, so I think it's all very grade oriented. Students have also become very grade oriented. So when you think of a complex problem like productivity, it's, in you know, you have to think of inputs of all of these kinds of things. And I welcome a discussion on productivity, but then it has to be nuanced. It has to be informed, well-informed, I mean, and it has to be backed by evidence and research. It can't be, oh, I think productivity is going down or I think productivity is not rising. It's
0: not a question of what I think. It's a question of what the data tell me. So finally, I'd like to ask you a little more of a macro level question. So when productivity is low, we have kind of established that even state governments are trying to increase in amount of working hours, and they hope that it could probably get them foreign uh, direct investments. We saw that in Tamil Nadu, we saw that in uh, Karnataka, we saw that in Rajasthan. So could that actually help? Can longer working hours stop? Okay, that's a very
1: different category of workers, you know. So what Mr. Muthi was referring to was basically white collarized. Yeah, yeah. But when you look at the labor law relaxations in a number of states in India, that's to do with manual work or factory work, which is semi-skilled or might be skilled work as well. And the restriction of earlier of the eight-hour workday is being relaxed. Now it can go up to 10, it can go up to 12. And the idea is that it will um, lower the turnover. You don't have to constantly find new people. You just get one, the same people to work more hours. So yeah, in principle, assuming everything else is exactly the same, if people work more up to a point, yeah, output will increase. Definitely. Is that the best way to increase the output? That is a question, again, we have to ask ourselves. Should the firms invest in technological upgradation? Should the firms invest in uh, making sure that the workers have a better work-life balance or are able to enjoy leisure? output will go up for sure. But then we have to take larger questions into account. And of course, the gender dimension of it, which is that would it be more difficult now for women to work 12-14 hours as is expected. So while you might increase output in because of these workers working higher, but by losing out on the female workforce, the net effect of that on GDP is not very clear that it's going to definitely increase. Yeah, for that particular factory, if they had 100 workers before they were working eight hours, now 100 workers work 10 hours, output will increase for sure. But we have to when you're thinking of state level GDP or national level GDP, then you have to take off all into account all these trade-offs as well, right?
0: So that's not really a great way to go about it, then is it?
1: Yeah. I mean the thing is now in the United States, there is all this literature on what you know, again, not not I'm not talking about factory workers and so on, it's mainly office jobs. Things like what they call quiet quitting, which is you don't really quit the job, but it's so demanding that you just tune off or you just, you know, you're sitting in front of the computer, but you're really not. So whereas in Europe, in Scandinavia, etc., they're saying four days a week is enough, you know, deliver whatever we need to do. We need leisure. We need better work-life balance. We need to let de-stress lives. So in the West, they've gone to that level of conversation. We are not there yet, obviously, because we are not rich enough to think of this these these kinds of options. So, yeah, there is a case to be made for increase in GDP, but at what cost, you know? So we have to think more holistically about the question rather than one employer saying, OK, I'm just going to make my workers work 12 hours and that's it. So, I'm, um, you know, that's 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 a short term myopic solution. But I think we need a bigger, more a more comprehensive uh, discussion into what will enhance. Even if GDP was the only goal, which it should not be, I think that, you know, well, when you think of well-being, GDP is not the only thing that contributes to well-being. But yes, GDP does contribute to material prosperity. So even if somebody was only narrowly focused on that, even then, I think all of these questions are are extremely important.
0: I think that that does make a lot of sense because our kind of neighbor, China and Japan, who have cultures of working really long hours, now they are trying to ensure that their workers don't work that many hours. And. In China's example, they're trying to get people married and have children and most people can't because they work a lot of hours throughout for six days a week. And they're like so tired and they're unable to do so. So if the cost of working longer hours means literally no life and it's like Korea and Japan and uh, uh, and even China to that extent, uh, they don't have enough people anymore. right? So that's a huge problem. Then it will soon go then.
1: That's what I'm saying that when you think of the world of work, you know, you re- must remember that it's differentiated by sector, is differentiated by the level of formality, you know, uh, some work people work in very precarious, very survivalist, king rags from the street and selling them for a scrap, that's also work. Yeah. And somebody is sitting as a manager in a, you know, firm, that's also work. Mm-hmm. But I think the problems of work at all of these different levels are different. And mm-hmm. we need to make sure, first of all, how do we get workers from a very low productivity sectors, not because they don't work hard enough, but the sectors are low productivity. How do we move? That's been the classic problem of economic transformation, which is how do you get workers from low productivity sectors to high productivity sectors? It's not about worker productivity because they are not working hard. It's about sectoral transformations and sectoral shifts. You know, so those are the questions that I think we need to be looking at. And even if we talk about narrowly about labor productivity, I think we need better data to make any generalized, you know, one sweeping statement that sort of explains everything. I don't think we can do that.
0: Thank you so much, Professor, for joining me today and having this wonderful conversation.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So we've already covered how employees will bear the brunt of working 70 hours a week in two previous podcasts. Listen to those podcasts to know how long working hours can affect the mental and physical health of employees. The links are in the description. Until the next time, Anni Vedita signing off.